Mummy's Coming Home with John Field, Indy Leclerc, Ian Morrison, Mark Perver and Chris Wallace. The Jobcast, June 2014 edition. Hello and welcome to The Jobcast. I'm Mark and presenting with me today are Indy and Chris. Hello guys. Hiya. Hiya. In the show this time, Indy and I interview Professor John Butterworth. Ian Morrison and John Field take a look at what's happening in the June night sky, and we'll bring you some astronomical odds and ends. But first, before all of that, here's Indy with this month's news. In the news this month, a galaxy up in arms. When the noted philosopher and occasional astronomer Immanuel Kant observed galaxies in the 18th century, he thought they looked like island universes. Fast forward 250 years or so, and we know that while poetic, that name is quite far from the truth. Astronomers in the 1920s debated whether galaxies and nebulae were part of our own Milky Way or not. Edwin Hubble conclusively put the matter to rest by measuring the distance to Cepheid variable stars in spiral nebulae. Galaxies are, to paraphrase, far, far away. Hubble also came up with a classification system for galaxies that we still use today, with the two main categories being spiral and elliptical galaxies. We now estimate that there are roughly 200 billion galaxies in the observable universe which can presumably all be sorted using this system. One of the most studied galaxies, by virtue of its proximity, is the Andromeda Galaxy. Andromeda, also known as Messier 31, is the closest spiral galaxy to the Milky Way and is the largest galaxy in the so-called local group of galaxies. It is in fact moving towards the Milky Way, and the two galaxies are expected to collide in roughly 4 billion years. Before that happens, though, Scientists have been very interested in studying Andromeda to shed more light on the formation process and evolution of spiral galaxies. Andromeda's spiral arms are of particular interest. Some images of the galaxy appear to show it having concentric rings rather than these arms. Astronomers have suspected that the clue to Andromeda's shape might lie in the way it has interacted with surrounding satellite galaxies over time. In 2006, a team from South Africa performed a simulation of a collision between Andromeda and the dwarf galaxy M32, assuming that M32 passed through the larger galaxy very close to its centre. They found that the gravitational effect of this interaction was to give Andromeda concentric rings, similar to the shape it has today. However, a trajectory sending M32 very close to the centre of Andromeda is unlikely according to astronomers at Harvard and the University of Maryland. This is for two reasons. Firstly, there is simply less chance of M32 passing close to the centre, simply because it's a very small region, a smaller target. Secondly, dwarf galaxies moving towards the centre of a bigger galaxy have a good chance of getting nudged off course by other satellite galaxies. The astronomers have run a new simulation where M32 crosses the edge of Andromeda's disk, and their findings were recently posted on the archive. Simulating Andromeda and its companion over a period of 2 billion years, a sped-up film shows M32 shooting through the disk and generating ripples which turn into spiral arms. The effect is not unlike throwing a stone into a pond. In contrast to the previous simulation, this study finds that spiral arms are generated by the collision, although these arms would look a lot like concentric circles when viewed almost edge-on, which is what the astronomers suggest is going on here. This result provides insight into Andromeda's history and formation, and definitely suggests that the collision is responsible for the shape it has today. It also provides information about the companion dwarf galaxy, M32. The currently accepted theories about dwarf galaxies say that they are so compact because their larger companion strips them of outer layers of gas, stars, and dark matter. The simulation suggests otherwise, though. The intense gravitational encounter with Andromeda would not have been enough to remove the quantities of matter consistent with observations made today. This means that the dwarf galaxy must have started off very compact, implying that it and others are formed by different processes than astronomers thought. In other news, the universe is a little bit less habitable than we thought. A type of star favoured for exoplanet searches, known as M-dwarfs, which are a type of red dwarf star, might turn out to be very inhospitable for life. M-dwarfs are quite common, relatively small, and they're cool stars, meaning that a planet in the theoretical habitable zone where liquid water can be found, would be closer into its star and orbit the star in less time. This would give astronomers more chances to study it. However, 
The proximity of the habitable zone also means that the effect of the solar wind coming from the M-dwarf is stronger, thus reducing the chances that exoplanets around that star would be able to hold onto their atmosphere. Astronomers have found that the solar wind experienced by such planets could be 10 to 10,000 times stronger than the solar wind encountered by the Earth. While this diminishes the chances of life, it has been noted that planets with a strong enough magnetic field may be able to hold onto their atmosphere. Furthermore, the strength of the wind is found to decrease as a star ages, so that planets which had been able to hold onto their atmosphere for the first billion years or so may be able to harbour life eventually. Planet hunters are not discouraged by this new information, though, and say that it is definitely worth studying the planets around M-dwarf stars just to get an idea of the different conditions available in the universe. The search for planets, then, is still on. Thanks for that, Indy. Now, Indy and Mark interview Professor John Butterworth about particle physics. We're with Professor John Butterworth, who's uh, the head of the physics and astronomy department at UCL and who is working on the Atlas detector in CERN. Hi, John. It's a pleasure to have you on the Jodcast. Thanks for asking. It's a bit of a special uh, interview because, well, as you may have noticed, John is a particle physicist and not an astronomer, and we don't get very many of those (laughs) (laughs) on the Jodcast, but we do know that... um, a lot of a lot of our listeners are interested in particle physics as well and the overlap between the two. So um, I'm just going to start off by asking you a little bit about your own research and mm-hmm. and you're obviously, you've obviously been very involved in uh, the search for the Higgs boson. So if you could just give us an outline of what you've been doing. In, in that. Sure. Um, so we've been on, we've been building the Large Hadron Collider for a long time. I got first involved in it in, in 2000, but I wasn't even one of the first people. Um, mm-hmm. But but I, I obviously we. We started taking data um, properly in 2010. Um, for, the, for the first two years of that data taking, I was leading one of the analysis groups at CERN, which was basically measuring the, what we call this. It was a standard model group, it was called, which meant we were measuring all the things we expect to see and seeing whether they are what we expect them to be, which is a necessary precursor to finding anything new, of course. Yeah. Um, and that was fun. And we were basically exploring physics in a new energy regime and seeing whether it matched our expectations. And kind of in parallel, I also developed a new way of of, fi- of looking for the Higgs boson. So when it's produced and it's travelling very fast, there are some particular advantages and and uh, and challenges to identifying these kind of very fast moving Higgs bosons, okay. boosted Higgs bosons. And I, I did some work on that with some theorists, and then with my student, and that brought it into the experiment. Okay. So do you do most of your work now in London, or do you continue to go to CERN? I, I still go to CERN and I still work on Atlas, but you can obviously do a lot of that analysis remotely um, over the internet and things. So, so I go there a lot less than I used to. I was basically going every week for the first two years, which isn't very sustainable, I would say, in any sense of the word, mentally or ecologically or physically. Um, but uh, So I still go, but it's more like once a month now rather than once a week. Um, I Basically, now I run the department at UCL. I do all my management and administration bits of science yeah. in London rather than at CERN, which is, was part of the plan, really. Yeah, the boring but necessary yeah. bits, I suppose. Can I jump in with a question that, Stephen, when we were listening to the talk, it was, mm-hmm. you were saying it was sort of about demystifying some of what particle physics is about, yeah. which is really, really interesting. It made me sort of think, as an astrophysicist, I'm still not sure I quite understand exactly what a particle is. So when you were particularly talking about the Higgs, if I asked you a slightly unfair question, which is, what is it? Uh-huh. What, what would you say? Well, the... The problem is with language and that particle and wave are both classical analogies to things which are not what is going on at the quantum level, of course. So a particle, if it's the, the clear answer to what's a particle is it's an excitation in a quantum field, but that probably doesn't tell most people much. Um, but but there, there is a very good, I mean, the classical analogy of that is the Higgs boson is is uh, the physical sign that there is this background field in the universe that is is what gives things mass, gives particles mass, and it's by interacting with this background energy that they get mass. And the Higgs boson is kind of a ripple in that. So what we're doing with the Large Hadron Collider is hitting the background field of the universe really hard and making waves in it, and those are the Higgs boson. Of course, it's not really a wave, it's a quantum excitation in that field, but still that's a good good way of thinking about it. Is that the way that we understand every sort of particle, that there's a field Pretty much, yeah. Everywhere. That's right. There's a field of electrons, a field of photons between us now, which is... And the the difference with the Higgs is that most of those fields, if you uh, 
if you if you go to the lowest energy state then of, of the universe, a bit of, a bit of the universe, and you suck out of it all the energy you can, make it as, the vacuum you know, as lowest energy you can, it will have no electromagnetic field in it, no electron field, no quark field, no color field, um, but it will have a Higgs field because the lowest energy state of the universe has a non-zero Higgs um, field value. And I guess we should maybe go into the fundamental thing, which is the Higgs is is what gives things mass. So mm -hmm. um, presumably that means there's Higgs particles everywhere, but it's not so easy to detect them. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't tend to think of it as Higgs particles everywhere. It's that this field is everywhere. Now, in principle, in quantum mechanics, a field is can be looked at as a, a sea of foaming little particles be popping in and out of existence if you if that makes you happy to think of it that way um so again it's this wave particle thing neither is right it's you've got to think of it in terms of quantum fields but um to make a real higgs boson that you can actually lives long enough for that you can see it decay and you can see that it had the right mass that takes a lot of energy and they're not just everywhere they're, you have to work very hard to get those so in, in a sense when you when you collide things in, in the uh, in the lhc does that excite the Higgs field in such a yeah. way that it produces a Higgs Basically, boson yeah. as opposed to just interacting with it and not leaving a trace That's behind. right, that's right. Okay, um, I think that's helped me get my head around <laughs> stuff a bit more since hazy memories of undergrad, sort of. <laughs> yeah. um, actually, talking about sort of large-scale scientific projects, um, astrophysics is going in that direction as well, mm -hmm. and we've had, we have ULMA, um, the ULMA project, which I'm sure you've heard about, and soon to come SKA as well. Yeah, and this um, P5, I don't know if you know, but today the US strate Strategy for Particle Physics was released um, today. Okay. And it includes Dark Energy Survey and the Large Scale Synoptic Telescope, which are yeah. essentially astrophysics projects. But you know, there's a yeah. very strong link in both in terms of the scale and the kind of science that's been done. Yeah, um, so well, actually what I want to ask you is, with the LHC, is I mean, is that the sort of the biggest the project is going to get? I mean, is, is the next big particle project going to be something bigger or is it going to maybe split up into smaller I, I It's difficult to say. Um, I think it it can't really get much bigger because you can't go bigger than global. So in terms of number of people, it can't get bigger. Now, it may sure. be that we can build a bigger machine um, with, you know, as technology improves, you do more with the same amount of resource and the same number of people. Yeah. That may happen if there's a good science case for it. Um, but you can't, you can't, I mean, the whole world works at CERN now. You can't get bigger than the whole world yet, and so, yeah. at least until the space scientists have done something and found some more worlds we can collaborate with. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in that sense, th th there's this kind of, there's a process going on now as, as to see what large-scale facilities we do need and, and who, where should they be sited, because they can't, they shouldn't all be in Europe, you know, it would be silly. Um, and unaffordable as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the, the uh, it's also true that I mean the Higgs was quite special in that it was such an obviously important question to answer. Plus, we knew how to answer it. Now there the other there are plenty of open questions in particle physics and astrophysics, mm. but it's a lot. Um, there's no. It's a lot harder to. There's more diversity of approaches, and it's not. There's none of the approaches are really guaranteed to answer it, but all of them might. So, for instance, one of the big open questions is dark matter. Now, we might make dark matter at the Large Hadron Collider, which will be fantastic when we turn on again next year. Um, but we might see it first in, in a direct ex detection experiment underground where we see signals there, which mm -hmm. there's hints and always controversies about that going on. Yeah. Or, or you might see it in a telescope. You might see it in astrophysics or in high-energy neutrinos or something where you see evidence for dark matter annihilating in the center of a galaxy, and that's the significant. And there's three completely different ways of addressing what's essentially the same physical problem. And obviously, you'd like all three of them to confirm each other. But you know, <laughs> yeah. but it, 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 as to what are the, you know, there's also a whole area of neutrino physics which is fascinating. Um, we want facilities in that. It may turn out that that's more interesting than the energy frontier for something. It certainly, mm -hmm. is for some questions. It may be that we want to spend more of our money there, uh, more of our time there. Um, so it's. We have particle physics did come to a kind of uh, a nexus, I guess, where we all this right. had to be done before we could get on with the yeah. next thing. And yeah. uh, now yeah. there's there's a, a real live discussion as to what the next thing should be. There are plenty of options, there are plenty of exciting things to do, but we need to focus again and decide which ones. And okay. it may be that it's not all just on one machine. But next thing, sure. And um, actually, you mentioned dark matter. Uh, I think one thing that would be quite interesting for our listeners is a particle physicist's take on dark matter, because in astrophysics, we it comes up a lot. We mention it, and you know, we're sort of we can measure it, measure its effects, see uh -huh. it, you know, see it through uh, what 
gravitational lensing techniques and see, well, there's obviously something there. Yeah. But when you say sort of, oh, it would be great to find it when we turn the LHC back on in April, what, what exactly would you be looking for? In that, well, I guess, I guess. The, we know there are no candidate particles in the standard model that could be it, really. I mean, neutrinos mm -hmm. are dark matter, but they're too light. They move too fast, so they don't match any of the data, yeah. any of the observations. Um, so what we would do is we create things we can't see. That's a good experimental challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Normally, what you use things like conservation of momentum, same, yeah. same way that we can see neutrinos, essentially. We, we can't measure them directly, but we can see that one was created and it flew off in one direction and is balanced by other stuff. If we see too many events like that, there's, there's something other than neutrinos going on. It could be dark matter. There are you know, supersymmetry theories and things have candidates for it. Extra dimension theories have candidates for what dark matter might be. Mm -hmm. um, there, there's a bunch of you know, different theoretical ideas which often have different implications for how you, you would detect it otherwise. But in the LHC, you, you, you could make them in pairs, basically. And okay. Therefore, that's, it's not entirely model independent, but it's more model independent than some of the other ways of doing it. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I remember, it reminds me of this, uh, when I was a PhD student, the solar neutrino problem was still going, that there weren't enough neutrinos arriving from the sun. And it's like, there's something fundamentally wrong with particle physics or the nuclear physicists don't quite know what they're doing in the sun. <laughs> and of course, I thought, it's got to be the nuclear guys that are wrong, you know. Because <laughs> it wasn't, it was fundamentally new. It was that neutrinos had mass and were mixing. Mm -hmm. There's a part of me that goes, no, those astronomers just <laughs> got, got their <laughs> observations wrong. Yeah. Well, it's, how can you invent a whole new particle just because there's something you don't <laughs> understand in the sky? That's stupid. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it really, it, it, the the data is so compelling that, that there's yeah. something out yeah. there that you yeah. know the particle physics is wrong. It's incomplete yeah. at least, and we need to find out why. Well, that, that's definitely the astronomer's point of view. Oh, there's something there. We'll just need the particle <laughs> physics to find out find what it, what it is. was. Yeah. Just bring yeah. on to one other thing though, which is that some people do talk about alternative theories of gravity, and yeah. I was wondering if there's anything, as you alluded to, you're still going to higher energies with the LHC. Is there anything? that you could find out relating to the Higgs boson that might tell us anything about either alternative theories of gravity or dark matter itself? Um, well, dark matter maybe, because there are candidates where dark matter doesn't couple to anything except the Higgs. And therefore, mm -hmm. you know, you see it in Higgs decays, but you won't see it anywhere else. So yeah. that, the Higgs is a, can, can be a gateway into into those kind of theories. Sure. When it comes to gravity, very unlikely. I mean, if we, if we saw evidence for extra dimensions, um, and that could bring gravity into the into the standard model, um, and the, the, those ideas were quite popular before we turned on. Now there's no evidence for it; they're less popular. It could still show up, but in most of those ideas were ways of getting around the need for a Higgs, actually, because the Higgs is such a weird mm -hmm. thing. People didn't like you know, inventing a whole field, yeah. a fundamental scalar particle, or whatever, just to solve a bit of maths. They thought they were looking for other ways to solve it, so they invented extra dimensions instead, which sounds just as radical to me. But there you go. <laughs> So um, those things still might show up and might teach us something about gravity, but they're going to be gravity at such small distance scales that I don't think it would be relevant for the dark matter observations that astronomers are making anyway. I think that you know, that's a very different distance scale and energy scale that's being dealt with there. All right. Well, one final question is just that um, as astronomers, we were pretty disappointed that um, you actually didn't make a black hole when you turned it on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it would have been nice. I mean, I, I presume you know that it would have been... Uh, very small black hole that would have been harmless and, and decayed as quickly as the Higgs decays, basically. <laughs> okay. But it would have been nice to see those, yeah. yeah. And Hawking lost his bet. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thanks very much for, for talking to us today, John. And um, It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for that. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all the other things that we can't fit anywhere else. The odds and ends. Okay, so I'll uh, kick things off by talking about the thing known as the IC or ISEE3 reboot project. And what this is, is a bunch of so-called citizen scientists, you know, just assorted members of the public, scientists, computer programmers, the works, are trying to make contact with an old NASA satellite and send it back into its, in its first orbit uh, and, and get it to do the science that it was initially sent out to do. So I'm going to give you a little bit of history first. So this probe is called the um, ISEE, or International Sun-Earth Explorer, number three, because it was when it was launched, it was launched with two other probes, IC-1 and 2. And this was launched in 1978 into a heliocentric orbit. And its goal was to study mainly the interaction between the Earth's magnetic field and the solar wind. 
So it's got all sorts of instruments like particle detectors and charge detectors and, and that sort of thing. And and it wanted to just measure this interaction in the solar system. They sent it out into the so-called halo orbit, uh, and it was the first kind of probe to, to go into this kind of orbit where it's not orbiting around anything, but it's it's moving around the Lagrange point, uh, this L1 point, where the attraction from the Sun and the Earth uh, cancel out. And so using this sort of interplay of gravitational attraction, the probe can stay roughly in the same place, so it's it's more or less orbiting around this Lagrange point. And this was the first human-made uh, object to, to orbit in one of these, these halo orbits. So it just chilled out there for a few years, and then in 1982 it was repurposed as the ICE, or the International Comet Explorer, and it got sent on a very clever trajectory that placed it in the tail of the Jacobini-Zinner comet, uh, and it got there in 1985, and this was one year before Halley's Comet in 1986, which got followed by four or five different probes, but it was a bit of a coup for NASA because they'd reached a comet in our solar system one year before the whole Halley thing. So after after getting uh, into the tail of this Jacobini-Zinner comet, it continued along its trajectory, still in the solar system, uh, still in a sort of heliocentric orbit, but not really close to anything, so it wasn't really very useful for NASA. And in 1997, they decided to finally shut it down for good, even though they realized that there were still 12 out of the 13 instruments working and it had enough propellant for another final sort of thrust or boost um, somewhere. In 2014, the scientist who had originally, originally planned all of these trajectories and orbits, Robert Farquhar, who's known as, he's 81 years old now, but he's known as somewhat of a trajectory genius. He's been able to send all sorts of probes working for NASA, send them on all sorts of different trajectories and being very clever about how to work orbital mechanics to get things to where we want them to be in the solar system. And he brought out to people's attention that this this um, IC3 or ICE was going to be passing back extremely close to Earth and it would be able to theoretically to get back in touch with it, to recontact it and to make it do a final little burn of propellant that would put it back into its original halo orbit around the L1 point where if we had the way of talking to it, we could get still more useful data because it's running off solar power. So if we've got it in a stable orbit, we can get quite a bit more data, even though the instrument's 30 years old. And that's what this IC Reboot project is all about. And excitingly, they've managed to talk to it. So this was a couple of weeks ago. They've been frantically trying to set up a way of talking to this to this probe because the transmitters and all the relevant sort of languages or the way of talking to this thing was completely well, well was decommissioned and so was more or less lost in the archives uh, when that happened so they've managed to to talk to it and they've they've used the Arecibo uh, radio observatory which was powerful enough to beam up the signal to the probe so they've made they made contact on the 29th of May and at the moment They've managed to give it a command to switch into what's called telemetry mode, which is just a mode which beams back lots of data uh, about the spacecraft's position and about its velocity to the to the control center. And once they've got more information about that, they'll be able to effectively calculate the right trajectory and and tell it exactly how and when to burn its propellant to bring it back into the into the uh, stable uh, Lagrange orbit and do more science. This is very exciting because it was entirely crowdfunded. So NASA was sort of looking interested from a distance, but they said, we, we haven't got any money for this at all. So as long as you don't ask us for any money at all, we're happy for you to take this thing out of our hands. And uh, if you raise the money and the expertise to do it, then by all means, it's all yours. Also, the data that they get from this will be completely uh, available to the public and completely open source, well, open source, just completely open. Uh, for anyone who wants to to work on it, so I think that's a that's probably the biggest example of crowdfunded science or and space and uh, space related thing. Yeah, and it's it's really quite exciting. How much did they have to raise to do that? Uh, they had to raise, I think, around one hundred fifty thousand US dollars. Okay, so it's not uh, it doesn't seem like a huge amount, but I suppose then there's always like the ongoing costs of actually continuing to communicate with it that would have tied up NASA um, workers that they probably couldn't commit to. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I think with, with those sort of things, I mean, NASA, well, they had a load of cuts recently, and I think they're quite strict on the terms of the budget and in terms of they don't want to get involved as much as it would be interesting. They they, they just can't let themselves get involved in and spend even $1,000 on something that just wasn't planned, essentially. How I mean, how kind of beneficial would the, the science be? Is it just quite a nice idea or is it kind of... I think it's a bit of both. I mean, the the project, uh, the people who run who are running the project claim that the science will be useful, and that even though we do have satellites and, and probes out in that sort of um, solar system space and that heliosphere, uh, they claim that there's still useful useful data to be taken uh, about the, that space in the solar system. So, uh, you know, in science, yeah. more data is always better. So, who who are we to say? Yeah. Otherwise, to I guess. see if it all works. After how many years was it? So it's been thirty thirty odd years wow. since uh, since the thing was was last used for science and and it, it's, it's really interesting because they had a very small window. It was sort of late May, early June, in which they could actually contact this thing and get it to do the burn. So if everything goes well, they, they'll have it in place by August essentially. So so the, it was kind of a race against time to for NASA to approve the thing and for the paperwork to go through, even if they had the money and they had to find a decent transmitter. And, Thankfully, the people at RSU stepped forward as well. So it was a great sort of collaborative effort that all came together, which is which is brilliant. Well, my my argument end is essentially me being very jealous. <laughs> so the new uh, there's three new astronauts and well, astronaut and a cosmonaut going to the International Space Station. Well, they they left on the 28th of May. The astronaut from ESA is Alexander Gerst, and he uh, he has an incredible CV. You should have a look at it. <laughs> He wa- he worked as a geologist, uh, working on predicting yeah. volcanoes, and in that job he went to Antarctica, New Zealand, all across the world. And then he thought, let's apply to be uh, an astronaut. Wow. In two thousand and eight, he applied, and then now he now he's going to the um, International Space Station for six months. Wow, it's fantastic. Yeah, it was really it's really interesting what they're doing. So they so then one of the main things that he's part of is uh, medical research. Okay. So looking at the effects of zero gravity on on the body and on like, psychologically, but also physically on your joints and on what kind of food you need to intake. And also, I didn't realize this before, but apparently a lot of most astronauts, when they first go to space in the first few days, they have horrendous headaches as they're kind of acclimatizing to it. And apparently it's worse than they've ever experienced on Earth. And so there's a lot of research into trying to, what causes this and trying to reduce that for, so that potentially when the people start to use space tourism, Obviously, that's not going to be a favourable thing when you have a week holiday and you spend four days of it in pain. Yeah. Well, yeah. But most of the... So there's loads of other research into the kind of Mars, a Mars mission, so how much food you actually need to intake to be able to keep functioning. And how... Because you don't want to overdo it when you're going to Mars, because obviously it's a, it's a huge mission. Mm. And loads of other loads of other things like that, so messing up with your sleep cycle. And, yeah, it's really interesting. Um, it's really interesting work. So they're basically going to space to be massive guinea pigs for six months and just being prodded all over the place. <laughs> yeah, so I think, well, that's part of it. And there's also these uh, load of other kind of physics experiments to, that you can only do in zero gravity as well. Plus also the kind of maintenance that you have to do to the International Space Station. Mm-hmm. There's, yeah, there's a whole body of work you have to do. I wonder when ESA is going to put out another job advert for astronauts. I think 2008 might have been the last time. It's a bit, bit early for us. <laughs> yeah. Maybe the next time it comes around. So how, how stiff was the was the competition to get into the so program? There were eight thousand applicants. That's okay. quite a lot. That's quite yeah. a lot. Yeah, yeah. You're looking through like the, all the other kind of astronauts and cosmonauts that are there, and you think, oh yeah, thirty five thousand people applied for when when this person got it. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd give it a go. I think having a PhD helps. <laughs> I think it so, does. Yeah. I want to be a science specialist. Yeah, and uh, I just I guess keep fit and. Cross your fingers a lot, <laughs> <laughs> or hope that they come overcome all these medical problems and space tourism exists, and then get very rich. <laughs> well, I suppose the price will come down. Who knows? Fifty <laughs> years from now, that's true. Um, I I kind of thinking that sometimes though, if if that becomes a thing, I mean, surely 
the Earth orbit would just start to get a little bit crowded, you know? Like, there's already that so much space junk. I don't know if anyone's seen the film Gravity, but that's already quite dangerous. Um, <laughs> was that was that a, a true story? That was <laughs> not a true story, but, but it's true that there is a lot of stuff, like little things floating up in space. And um, We'd have to be more careful. We'd have to we, be careful. We probably would have to be more careful, because we've already done a pretty bad job on Earth, I can't think. <laughs> we wouldn't want to mess up Earth orbit either. No flicking rubbish out of the space taxi window, definitely. Yeah, no chewing gum. <laughs> And well, for the last odd and end, I just want to talk about uh, nothing at all. Uh-huh. But it, it should have been something, or it could have been something, it just turned out it wasn't. Uh, but it's just quite interesting to show how um, rumours and word can get around even in the astronomical community. It's all about gamma ray bursts, which are events where you get very, very high energy bursts of radiation caused by, it's thought to be exciting things like stars falling into black holes, although no one's completely sure. And there's a telescope called SWIFT, that monitors um, looking for these high-energy bursts of gamma rays and X-rays all the time. It's it's orbiting out in space, and as its name suggests, it's designed to rapidly catch these bursts and then um, alert people to them, so that other telescopes can go and have a look at where this thing has happened and hope to see an afterglow with other wavelengths. Um, and last month, it reported something. So, sort of an automatic detector said, "Oh, I found a burst of X-rays," and what normally happens is that goes through quite a careful analysis to say, is that is this a real thing? Or could it just be what they call noise? So like a, a few X-ray photons just turn up for no, no special reason. Um, but at this particular time, it wasn't possible for the team that worked on it to do a proper analysis because there was a power cut going on at their data centre. So they just sort of released the initial results saying quite a lot of X-rays and there seemed to be quite a lot there afterwards as well. Um, and they always publicly announce this stuff. So... They released it to the general public and it caused a big uh, kerfuffle on the internet of people saying, oh, there's been a gamma ray burst, it's really, really big. Um, and in the end, it turned out to be nothing at all. Hmm. That's sad. <laughs> well, it's not like there aren't any other gamma ray bursts around. It's just interesting to show how um, a false alarm can get a lot of people really excited. So how, I mean, how common are gamma ray bursts? Like, how regularly would you expect to see them? I think Swift sees them quite often. I actually don't know the exact numbers. Um, but I think like that they come up with, something? I'm not sure it's that many, okay. but it's certainly not extremely rare. I mean, okay. I suppose at least um, a handful, I don't know, every every month or something like that. And so they're quite careful to try and screen out background noise. They say, right, well, it's got to be a pretty big chunk of x-rays coming to actually alert, alert us. But this would happen in, in the region of the Andromeda galaxy, and they actually allow slightly less bright events to trigger their telescope in those cases because there are also known sources of X-rays that can come from things like uh, neutron stars in a binary system with a normal star. Um, and what they think happened in this case is there was probably just a load of X-ray noise that just happened, and then the follow-up sort of saw a familiar X-ray source but they weren't able to put two and two together because they didn't have access to the full data analysis. Mm-hmm. But actually, the team that released the data, they never said, this really is a burst. They just said, here's something that looks a bit like it might be a burst. Not quite sure anyone wants to do anything about it. And I just think it's kind of funny because statistics sometimes plays tricks with you. We all know that our eyes can play tricks on us sometimes, and this seems to have happened with this X-ray telescope. It was just a sort of something that could have been an event, but it actually just turned out to be nothing for no particular reason i think i think that it kind of got hyped up a little bit on like social media and things like that where you know i mean as astronomers and are as active on twitter as anyone else and so when news gets around and it gets very exciting all of a sudden then well that's kind of the interesting thing of modern society well, <laughs> I suppose that's it yeah release your data <laughs> at your peril yeah exactly <laughs> you know 20 years ago it would have been confined to the team working on it or maybe another team and then it wouldn't have gotten out and made such a big big deal out of it. But it does show that their system works because the whole point of having alerts is that um, other astronomers can then point their telescopes very quickly. So the fact that this one happened to be a false alarm actually isn't particularly serious in the context of all the ones that have actually happened that have had a real provenance and, and people have been able to do a follow-up on them. And oh, yeah. these gamma ray bursts seem to give off radiation at all frequencies, so it's, it's well worth getting the word out there. Excellent. And now talking about what is definitely or almost definitely in the northern hemisphere night sky this month here's ian morrison the night sky for june 
2014. Well, to be honest, we don't have a lot of opportunities to observe the night sky in June, but if you are prepared to wait up sometime towards midnight, there are still some very nice things to see. Leo the lion will be setting over in the west, and the brightest star you'll see in the south is Arcturus in the constellation of Bootes. Further over and rising high in the east is the very bright star Vega in Lara. And over to its left, a little lower down, is Deneb, the brightest star in the constellation of Cygnus. Below them both, and fairly low over the horizon to start with, is Altair in Aquila. The three stars, Altair, Vega and Deneb, make up what is called the Summer Triangle. A nice thing to look for with a pair of binoculars is to run up from Altair towards Vega about a third of the way. You actually pass a fairly dark region of the Milky Way called the Cygnus Rift, and in there is in fact a nice asterism. It's Brocky's cluster, but normally called the coat hanger, because it looks just like an upside down coat hanger. And over to its left, not far above the eastern horizon to start with, is the rather nice, very small constellation of Delphinus the Dolphin. And of course, you shouldn't miss out on Ursa Major, fairly high in the north. West. It's two bright stars, Merak and Dubhe, pointing towards Polaris. Three stars make up the handle of the plough, and the central one is actually a double star, Mizar and Alcor, the horse and rider. But in fact, with a telescope, you can see that Mizar is also itself a double star. So, a very nice thing to look at. Well, let's have a look at the planets. Well, as June begins, Jupiter is setting nearly three hours after sunset. It is, however, now well past its best and fading from minus 1.9 to minus 1.8 during the month. That's actually still pretty bright, while its angular diameter shrinks from 33 to 32 arc seconds. It's moving towards superior conjunction with the Sun on July the 24th. By month's end, it will be low above the horizon after sunset, forming an almost straight line to the left of Castor and Pollux in the constellation of Gemini. With a small telescope, you should still be able to observe the four Galilean moons as they weave their way around it. But due to the low elevation, details on the surface, such as the equatorial bands and the great red spot, will be harder to see than in the last few months. Saturn. Saturn came into opposition on May the 10th, that's when it's nearest to us, highest in the sky, due south. It lies in Libra, midway between Spica and Antares, and shines with a magnitude of plus 0.2, fading somewhat to plus 0.4 by the end of the month. Its fully illuminated disk has a diameter of about 18 arc seconds. It's now moving slowly westwards in the sky, towards the double scar system Alpha Libri and ends the month just 2.5 degrees above and a little to its left. The good news is that the rings, with a diameter of about 40 arc seconds, are now opened out to about 21 degrees to the line of sight and present a magnificent view. With a small telescope, you should be able to spot the Cassini division that lies between the A and B rings, if the seeing conditions are good. Sadly, for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, Saturn is now lying in the more southerly part of the ecliptic, so even when due south, it doesn't get that high in the sky. And even worse, this will not improve for many years to come. It is possible to see Mercury towards the beginning of the month, given a low horizon in the west-northwest, perhaps about 45 minutes after sunset. But it fades rapidly, from plus 1.2 as June begins, to plus 3.4 by the 11th, and will soon be lost to view as it moves towards inferior conjunction, that means it's lying between the Earth and the Sun, on June the 19th. Well, Mars, following its opposition in April, Mars is now receding rapidly, and will dim from magnitude minus 0.5 to zero during the month. As it does so, its angular size will shrink from about 11.8 down to 9.5 arc seconds. So try to observe it early in the month, if weather allows. 
It starts June, just 2.5 degrees below Porima, Gamma Virginis, and ends a month 3.5 degrees to the right of Spica, Alpha Virginis. It'll be highest in the sky as darkness falls, and gives us a last chance, this apparition, to observe features on the surface. Finally, Venus. It starts June, shining at magnitude minus 3.9, and is moving rapidly across the lower part of Aries and into Taurus, where it passes between the Pleiades and the Hyades clusters on the 28th, and will be seen low above the eastern horizon half an hour before sunrise. It ends the month 3.5 degrees above Aldebaran. Its disk, now showing a full gibbous phase as it moves beyond the sun, drops in angular size from 14 to 12 arc seconds. But at the same time, the percentage of the disk which is illuminated increases from 77 to 85%. As a result, the effective area reflecting the sun's light stays almost constant, so there's only a drop of 0.1 magnitudes in brightness. Well, finally, what about the highlights this month? Well, Saturn obviously is the highlight. It reached opposition on the 10th of May, so is now due south and highest in the sky soon after darkness falls. To find it, follow the arc of the plough's handle downwards to first find the orange bright star Arcturus and continue down to find the white first magnitude star Spica in Virgo. Saturn, a little brighter than Spica, lies in Libra down to its lower left and will appear slightly yellow in colour. Held steady, binoculars should enable you to see Saturn's brightest moon, Titan, with its magnitude of 8.2. And a small telescope will show you the rings. A larger telescope will actually see great beauty. The outermost rings A and B are separated by a gap called Cine's Division. And lying within the B ring, but far less bright and difficult to spot, is the C or Crepe ring. As I said earlier, the rings are now fairly widely separated, so we see them well. Twice each orbit, the ring plane becomes edge-on. That last happened in 2009. They're now opening out, and they'll continue to do so until May 2017. They then narrow until March 2025, when they will appear edge-on again. So some things to look for in June. Well, two nice things are the globular cluster M13 in Hercules and the double-double star in Lyra. Hercules lies between Arcturus and Vega, and the four brightest stars make what is known as the keystone. Two-thirds up the right-hand side is the globular cluster M13, which is the best globular cluster. It's a spherical grouping of perhaps a million stars that we can see in the northern sky. I've actually put on a picture on the night sky webpage of M13 that I actually imaged about 1 to 3 o'clock this morning, so you might like to have a look at that. Over in Lyra, just to the left of the bright star Vega, is the multiple star system Epsilon Lyrae, often called the double-double. With binoculars, a binary star is seen, but when observed with a telescope, when the seeing is good, each of those two stars is itself revealed to be a double star, hence the name Double Double. Towards the end of June is a very good time to spot noctilucent clouds. They're also known as polar mesopheric clouds, and you see them in the deep twilight towards the north from our latitude. They're the highest clouds in the atmosphere at heights of around 50 miles or 80 kilometers. Normally they're too faint to see, but they're visible sometimes late June, early July, when they're illuminated by sunlight from below the northern horizon, whilst the lower parts of the atmosphere are in shadow. Their cause is not fully understood, and they appear to be increasing in frequency, brightness and extent. Could that be due to climate change? So on a clear night, when the light is draining from the northwestern sky long after sunset, take a look towards the north and you might just spot them. Finally, just four conjunctions when things are close together. Between the 2nd and the 4th of June, about an hour after sunset, looking towards the west-northwest, you should be able to spot Jupiter lying below Pollux in Germany. And given a very good low horizon, 
you may also see the far fainter planet Mercury, well below and a little to the right of Castor. On June the 7th, again about an hour after sunset, Mars will be visible just three degrees above and a little to the left of a waxing gibbous moon. June the 10th, again after sunset, Saturn and a gibbous moon come together. Looking south, southeast after sunset, Saturn will be seen just under two degrees up and to the right of the moon, which will be three days before full. And finally, on June the 24th, before dawn, you might be able to spot Venus and a very thin crescent moon. So looking east before dawn, Venus lying between the Pleiades and the Hyades clusters in Taurus will be about two and a half degrees to the left of a thin crescent moon. That would actually make a very nice wide field image. Well, I know there's not a lot of time to observe during June, but do try and make the most of it. Thanks for that, Ian. And now for everyone listening in the Southern Hemisphere, here's John Field with the night sky for the Southern Hemisphere for June. Kia ora, and welcome to the June Jodcast from Carter Observatory, Wellington, New Zealand. Here in the Southern Hemisphere, we are now experiencing our long winter nights and our short days. In the west half of the sunset, Jupiter is visible for the first half of the month, but will quickly slip into the twilight and disappear. Sirius, the brightest star in the night sky, is also visible in the west half of the sunset, and due to our long winter nights, it is now visible in the southeast before sunrise. Our southeastern evening sky is dominated by the zodiac constellations of Scorpius and following behind Sagittarius the Archer. The red star Antares marks the heart of the Scorpion. This name means the rival of Mars. To Māori and some Polynesian cultures, Scorpius is seen as a fishing hook, a much more familiar item to them here in the South Pacific. One of the Māori names for Antares is Rehua, and it marks the eye of the hook, and it represents the blood of Maui staining the hook. The region around Scorpius is home to a large number of star clusters and nebulae, which are easily observed in binoculars and telescopes. Nearby to Antares are two globular clusters, M4 and NGC6144. The M prefix and number are from the catalogue created by Charles Messier that he published in 1771. NGC is a new general catalogue of 7,840 objects. M4 is a brighter of the two and is easily seen in binoculars and from a dark sky site and may be visible with the unaided eye. NGC 6144 is much fainter at tenth magnitude and is visible in smaller telescopes. Along the curved body of the Scorpion there are a number of visual double stars that make a lovely sight to the unaided eye binoculars or in telescopes. Near the stinger of the Scorpion there is a naked eye cluster of stars that appears like a comet. Called NGC 6231, this is a cluster of stars similar in size to the Pleiades but further away at 6,000 light years. The stars in this cluster are much brighter than those in the Pleiades and if placed at the same distance they would shine as bright as Sirius, making a stunning sight in our night sky. Also nearby is the star cluster M7. Appearing as a haze to the unaided eye, this cluster appears as a nice scattering of stars in binoculars or wide-field telescopes. Also in this region, but much fainter, is the butterfly cluster M6. Telescopes reveal an elongated cluster of stars that forms the butterfly's wings, and with imagination, a central body can be seen. The neighbouring constellation Sagittarius also hosts a large number of nebulae, open and globular star clusters. The constellation represents an archer in Babylonian mythology. The brightest stars of Sagittarius form an asterism called the teapot. Lambda Sagittarii marks the top of the teapot and nearby is the globular cluster M22. It is one of the brightest in our night sky and can be easily seen in binoculars. Perhaps the most spectacular clusters and nebulae are the Lagoon and Trifid. The Lagoon Nebulae M8 gets its name as it appears as a compact cluster of stars surrounded by a circle of nebulosity with a dark rift. The western part of M8 is dominated by the two bright stars of 6 magnitude. The eastern part includes a loose cluster of stars. The Trifid or M20 is a small region of nebulosity nearby to the Lagoon. With a 200mm or greater telescope in a dark sky, it should be possible to spot the dark lane that split the nebulosity into three sections. Long exposure photographs of this region reveal a lovely clouds of gas glowing pink and blue with dark lanes and thousands of background stars. M23 is an open cluster 2,000 light years away consisting of over 100 stars being visible forming curving arcs and chains. M24 is a bright region of stars that is often called the small Sagittarius star cloud. This cloud includes a number of dark nebulae superimposed on a brilliant starry background. 
M25 is an open cluster with a number of deep yellow stars and 2,000 light years away. M55 at magnitude 7.4 is a bright globular cluster discovered in 1752. Binoculars will reveal it as a hazy star and progressively larger types will reveal more and more stars. The Milky Way is at its brightest, widest and densest in the region around Scorpius Sagittarius. The Arabians called the Milky Way Al-Nahar, the river. The Chinese refer to it as the river of heaven. Tamari is Ti'ikaroa, the long fish. Today we know we're looking along the plane of our galaxy and seeing the glow of the many millions of stars that stretch across our sky. The region of Sagittarius is in the direction of the galactic centre, which is about 30,000 light years away. The dark lanes visible in this region are clouds of dust and gas that may eventually form star clusters. It fins through Crux and Carina and then fades into the western sky. A scan along the Milky Way with binoculars will find many more star clusters and some glowing clouds of gas. In the south, the large clouds of Magellan and the small clouds of Magellan are in the lower southern sky, easily seen on a dark, moonless night. They are two small galaxies about 160 and 200,000 light years away. Close to home, we have the planet Saturn in our evening sky towards the north and is well placed for viewing amongst the stars of Libra. Mars is also in our northern sky after sunset. Saturn is past opposition and it will begin to fade and decrease in size when viewed for a telescope. The rings and disk and its largest moon Titan will still be easily seen through small telescopes. Venus is a brilliant morning star. It rises around 5am at the beginning of June, but near 6am by the 30th. In mid-June, Venus will be directly above the Matariki Pleiades star cluster as it begins its dawn appearance or heliacal rising. The southern winter solstice is on the 21st of June and it marks the time when the sun rises and sets at the most northerly points here in the southern hemisphere. Many cultures saw this as an important time and held special celebrations to mark its date. In Aotearoa, New Zealand, the dawn rising of Matariki, Pleiades and Puranga or Raijo coincides with our winter solstice and was seen as a herald of the new year. We hope you've enjoyed our jobcast and we wish you all clear skies. Thanks for that, John. And now on to the feedback. We didn't have any posts or emails this month, but we have had a couple of comments on Facebook on our last episode. Russ Jenkins said, the whole llama diversion really made my day, and added, great show in the bits about astronomy too. Um, so if you haven't listened to the last episode, there is quite a, an extensive um, interlude of talking about llamas. I'm not quite sure why I wasn't presenting, but they seem to be a bit of a recurring theme on the show now. Well, it is relevant, given that so much astronomy happens in Chile, and there are lots of wild llamas in Chile, and I think that was kind of <laughs> the point we were making. The uh, Alma people rescued a, uh, uh, um, a lost alpaca or something, so, a vicuña, sorry, so... <laughs> Wow. Yeah, llamas and astronomy intimately connected. Well, yes. I've heard that in around one of the E. Merlin telescopes, there are some alpacas living as well in the fields surrounding one of those. Oh, there you go. So even in England, I mean, it's not... <laughs> <laughs> this isn't coincidence. Expect to hear more about llamas. And also, <laughs> Philip King said, llamas, how glamorous. We think so too. So thank you very much for that. And on Twitter... Um, Thanks for all your, your retweets, and we got an especially cool Follow Friday this month from the official SKA Twitter account, so we're on we're on the radar of these important organizations, which is always nice to know. <laughs> and um, if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net, Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast, on YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast, Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash jodcast. And don't forget, you can always send us posts and the address is on the website. So all that's left to say is thank you very much to Professor John Butterworth for the interview. The editors were Indy Leclerc, Sally Cooper and Mark Perver. And the producer was Indy Leclerc. So until next time... Jod on! Jod on.